0: This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more.
3: Hello, it's Joe Stanley here. Thanks for joining us on Broad Radio On The Go. In this episode, my co host is author, TV presenter, and speaker Mimi Kwa. And this episode dives into two very different but beautiful ways of writing about who we are and our experience of being humans basically. So in a little while we explore Mimi's amazing memoir House of Kwa. Do check it out. I absolutely loved it so I highly recommend it um, as a book so I can't wait to share with you that conversation with Mimi about how she wrote that memoir and about her family. But first we talk about food and how it tells our stories when we're joined by broadcaster, award-winning author and just amazing all-round food maker, Alice Zaslavsky. Alice, I really love it. It's called The Joy of Better Cooking. And the premise is anyone can be a better cook. I like that because I'm never going to be a great cook, but I'd like to be a better one.
0: I think everyone just kind of needs to get that out of their heads that they need to be a good cook. That's something binary and so limiting. Uh, And it says that, uh, you know, I think we've got enough areas in our lives where we already kind of try and aspire to something. I feel like in the kitchen, uh, just if you aspire to be in there as often as possible, you're just going to get better naturally. So it's about flying hours.
4: Is that doing the dishwasher or (laughs) other chores in the kitchen or just being in the kitchen with the potential ingredients that could potentially go into a potential potentially fantastic dish that will potentially be appreciated.
0: All of the above. But as far as I'm concerned, if you're doing the cooking, someone else should be doing the cleaning. So uh, in our mm-hmm. household, my husband does all of the washing up. Uh, in fact, he does all the cleaning because I make all the mess. So <laughs> I think it's a great yin and yang there. I like your use of the
3: word potential there, Mimi, because it implies that there's always growth. There's always um, kindness because I I have to say when I cook and, and I'm not great and but I'm there a lot uh, and I always have grand goals for what I'm creating and when it falls short sometimes I'm very I'm very mean to myself I think there has to be forgiveness
0: there is and and I I really think that as women we do kind of um, try and aim for perfection too much kind of say you know what's the goal what sort of um, kind of what's the picture and what am I aspiring to but I have to say when I cook the dishes out of this book they don't look like the pictures in the book because I don't have a professional photography team I don't have a professional stylist I don't have a professional food team that puts all of that together and perfect lighting so just kind of what I'm saying is do less set less expectations on yourself and just have fun with it play be free because what you'll find is that over time you'll naturally get better and it will naturally start to look more and more not like the picture, but more and more like what you imagined in your own mind. Mm.
3: I have learnt a few things from your cookbook, which I've this week alone I've cooked three dishes from your cookbook, and um, I will admit, did not look like the pictures. <laughs> but what did you make? I made the meatballs last night, delicious, the meatball soup, um, mm. and I made the taco bowl, taco rice. And there was another one with the broccolis on top and I was the cheesy, crusty broccoli on top. Yeah, delicious, amazing. Um, Two (laughs) things I've learned though. A, oh my gosh, I have never cooked my mince, to really get very granular here, I've never cooked my mince the way you told us to cook it, which was basically you just take it, like you've squished it up in the packet and then you take it out as it all is and then you just put it on the fry pan like that and then you flip it over the other side and then it's cooked and then you just... separate it. Oh, like a giant. That's amazing.
0: (laughs) Good. I'm glad that we're kind of, we're all moving further on the continuum because it is, that's what it is. So um, this is the evolution of cooking. Exactly. Exactly, and that's one of the reasons why I love it, because I'm always evolving as well. And that's actually a tip that I picked up from uh, an Australian-Italian chef called Giovanni Pillou, and he made that for his bolognese. And I thought, oh, that's a really great idea, making a giant patty and letting it caramelise on one side and then mm. mash, 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 and then letting it caramelise on the other. So uh, I, I think it's a great way of keeping your mince from looking like brown worms, uh, <laughs> even just mushing it in the, in the little packet so that it uh, stops having the squiggles. If you think about the way that mince is actually uh, processed and you cook it that way, you keep it in these little sausage like squiggly worms and texturally, it just doesn't feel like a good experience. So if you cook it as one big patty and then you mash it, you just get a better mouthfeel, which really, Mm. if you break cooking down to take the pressure off yourself, you're trying to create something that feels good as you're eating it and feels good in your tummy and I guess actually feels good as you're cooking it too, which which is what the Joy of Better Cooking's about. I'm trying to make the experience of cooking an enjoyable one rather than forcing you to set unrealistic expectations on yourself.
4: There is something though about an aesthetically good looking meal. So whilst you're saying we don't we shouldn't put too much emphasis on making our meals look like the photoshopped, well-lit, you know, photography shoot meal that we might see in the pages of your book, what can we do just to make things look that little bit prettier? Like, for example, I'll go out to my herb garden and even if I've got a little bit of a, I hate to say it, dog's breakfast that I've created <laughs> of a meal, I find that if I pick some fresh herbs and sprinkle them on the top, mm. that can sort of salvage the aesthetic for everybody.
0: Herbs are like the jewellery of the food world. So even if your outfit is pretty plain, if you just add some herbs on top, as you say, it's the garnish, it just really lifts a dish and it creates texture. So the best thing to think about when you're thinking about the aesthetic of a dish is colour, because actually we do eat with our eyes and research is showing that it's the bioactives in each of those different uh, coloured vegetables and fruits and parts of our diet that Help us to feel great, but also help signify to our bodies that we're about to ingest something really nutritious and really exciting. So, think about adding colour to your plate. Herbs are fantastic because green is just such a a lifting, calming, energising colour. So, yes, grow some herbs. We've finally, and this is like three years after planting, we've finally got some dill and some coriander. And I'm adding it to everything together. I wouldn't normally put dill and coriander together, but it's working for me at the moment. And it's amazing how you can have something really flat and just add some herbs on top. Great. Christmas, buy yourself some herbs or grow them. Better better yet. Some nuts are also great. So if you've got some walnuts or some hazelnuts or some almonds just chopped up and sort of tossed over the top, Ottolenghi style, that can lift a dish as well. If you want to go to the next level, fry them in butter. Mm. Oh my guys, everything's <laughs> so better in oh yeah. butter. But if you're really? plant-based, then you could <laughs> do the same with olive oil. So just fry your nuts in olive oil and then you've not only got these toasty, lovely nuts, but you've also got this nut-infused oil that you can drizzle over the top. Mm. And a good finishing oil is really useful. So you'll see that on dishes that they always look quite glossy and, and lush on a page. It's because they've been oiled, like a body, you know. <laughs> so uh, like, a, like a body on the stage at a bodybuilding contest, think about oiling up your dish. That's what the finishing... Uh, oil is for. I've got an olive oil that I just use for finishing, which is sort of a bit more lush, but just any sort of fruity olive oil that you kind of just gloss. the the plate with right at the end or the platter can really make that difference. And then a few cheeks of lemon or lime to lift it, you know, in case people want something a bit more acidic, you can have those cheeks and squirt those over the top of the dish as well.
3: Mm. Alice, I I have to tell you that I have never felt more seen than when I read the introduction to your beautiful book uh, in which you acknowledged that Learning to cook sort of comes in stages, and often it starts with hanging out with our grandmothers, and and then we go through our life stages. Um, and then you said, what happens if if you miss a stage or three? Which for me made me really emotional because my family were not the kind of family where we cooked together, and I've always felt really envious of that. I've always felt kind of sad that I didn't have that. I mean, you know, I joke about it, we don't have that food tradition, you know, for us it was tuna casserole, that was it, right? So there's no cultural tradition, but also there were big gaps in our family as far as that was concerned because we had a lot of trauma and we just weren't a family that gathered together in a kitchen. And so I felt really kind of like, oh, that's so true that so many of us don't know how to cook because we just didn't have that, that kind of warm, you know, development of our relationship with food. But it reminded me also how the food we eat is a documentation of our lives, which is just, it's just a beautiful, you know, you really nailed it in your book. Thank you. Thank you, Joe.
0: And I, I really, um, I truly believe that one of the unfortunate kind of aspects of foodie culture is that it has made some people feel like they don't belong in that conversation so I really wanted to create like a permission slip to say you can be here you belong here and it's time for you to rewrite your own family story just because you didn't have that you know violins uh, crescendo of cooking yeah. at your non-as you know apron strings it doesn't mean that you can't in your 30s 40s 50s 60s you know 80s, start cooking for yourself and and for your family and just for the people that you love. And most importantly, for the person that you should love the most, which is for you.
3: Yes, actually, you've just inspired me and made me think about the fact that um, I can, because I really believe when you have children, that's your healing, right, for what you may have missed when you were growing up. And you've just made me go, you know what, I have to re- think the way I talk about cooking with my daughter, because I don't love cooking. But I need to change that language and maybe create for her now those memories Mm, that I didn't have.
4: Because I often say, I'm not a good cook. And I'll say that to my children or in front of my children if I'm talking to a friend, because my husband does most, or that could translate to all, of the (laughs) cooking at home. But I'm just reinforcing a negative message to myself, but also to my children who I'm sure would, you know, benefit from me pottering around on more than just the thermomix in the kitchen.
0: Exactly. And I really am so glad that we can have this conversation and it's about language and it's about kind of being careful because careful the things you say, you know, children are always listening and you don't want them in 30 years time to say, oh, my mum was a terrible cook, which actually is not true at all. You know, because it's kind of like saying, my mum's a terrible breather. We can all cook. <laughs> we can get better at breathing and we can get better at cooking, but it's a natural instinct. So it's actually about giving your children permission to know that it's a place where everybody can enjoy themselves. Because um, the best thing you can do actually for your kids is get them involved. It's actually the best thing you can do for yourself as well, because over time they will be the ones that are the most helpful And then all those tedious jobs that you don't really enjoy, they can do for you. You know, Mm. I get Hazel onto the, she's three and a half. I get her potting broad beans and, you know, mashing up. We've got some tuna for breakfast. So she was mashing the tuna and putting, putting the, that's uh, from the book as well, actually. That's, I think of, uh, you know, the the chicken of the sea um, sandwich. We've just made like a salad with it. And And she said, why don't we put some, this is so bougie, she's like, we could put this in, which is cornichons. Uh, so just yes. <laughs> some cornichons, but like you just put some pickles in. I love that she's already experimenting, and I think that's because she sees that sometimes I add something and it works, and sometimes I add something and it doesn't. And it's a very kind of conversational way in which we deal with it. It's not confrontational. And if you are thinking to yourself, "I'm not a good cook because I'm worried about how my family is going to receive the food," set yourself up to win. Put things on the table where the onus is on them to make the food taste the way they want it to taste. Mm. So salt flakes, cracked pepper. I mentioned the oil. Put a little bottle of olive oil on the on the table so that they can finish it for themselves. All of those kind of little things, even garlic powder, just some really nice, um, simple. Um, it's called simple organics, green lid. I've always got that on my table, and I just sprinkle if I feel like the dish is la- lacking depth. I sprinkle a bit of garlic powder, and suddenly it tastes better. Then the onus is on them to make the food taste as good as they want it to all of our taste buds are different and if it's still not good enough for them then they can get into the kitchen and cook it for themselves i love that
3: such great tips like the onus is on them to make Mm.
0: it taste the way they
3: i love it it's amazing alice i know that you've got a very tight schedule so i'm going to let you go but i did want to share with you that one of our um listeners today michelle says oh my god alice helped me love vegetables for the first time in my life that's of course because your previous cookbook was in praise of veg
0: well, that's, I'm so glad, Michelle, that you say that because I like to set myself some, some goals of my own. And with Impraise of Veg, it really was about shifting people's understanding and language around veg. So this is doing that, but on a broader scale about cooking in general and food in general. So, you know, really um, the way that I, figured out what I wanted to say in this book is that I did one-to-one interviews with people just like you I said you know I tried to find friends of friends who didn't know me and said that they were bad cooks or hated cooking and then I tried to solve their problems so whether they were worried about burning stuff or worried about uh, (laughs) poisoning their families or they just felt like they didn't belong there because they never got into the kitchen as a kid I spoke to a man who said well I grew up in a Greek household and whenever I tried to go in the kitchen my grandmother would say to me that's not where men go so Mm. he's now in his 30s and he's learning to love cooking again or learning to love cooking from scratch. So I want everybody to know that the kitchen is a place where everyone belongs and no matter where you are in your cooking journey, every time you step into it, you get better. And that is the joy. Mm, That's such a beautiful message
4: because it's really, it's around enoughness, isn't it? I can be enough in the kitchen.
0: Enoughness in your life. I think that ki- the kitchen is also a real place of therapy. So if you learn to be uh, more empathetic with yourself and learn that, that enoughness in the kitchen, then that can really broaden out into the rest of your life as well. Amazing. Alice, thank you so much for joining us, for squeezing us into
3: your very busy morning and thank you for your cookbook. I've referred to it so so much this week and I know it will continue.
0: Oh, thank you, Joe And Mimi, I'm going to send you a copy, and I can't wait to hear how your whole family just start cooking together. It's just wonderful. Thank you. I love that. Thanks, Alice. Have a great day.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
3: Wow, Mimi. I was just listening to Alice speak there about, it's like she gives so much of herself in her food knowledge and in her philosophy around food, right? And it just occurred to me that in a lot of ways, that's memoir telling for her. Mm. And you yourself have written a memoir. I
4: have. Did you like that segue? I love the segue. <laughs> I actually wanted to speak more about Alice's book, but very happy to segue. Oh no, tonight. let's let's. Tra- you, we're welcome to get your reflections yeah, on Alice's book. Well, I just thought, I mean, that it is memoir, even writing a cookbook, and I was very interested in how somebody, you know, because Ottolenghi and Nigella endorse Alice's book, which amazing, very well-known um, cooks, chefs, um, food makers, and I thought. Wow, I wonder how that works in that in the food writing industry when you're reviewing somebody else's book. Like do you go in and make some of the recipes do is it because you know the person? Mm. Are you reading it from sort of a memoir perspective? And I thought that's really interesting because of course, you know, when somebody reviews a novel or a memoir or a non-fiction book, they read the book. So yes, what do you yeah. do when you're reviewing a food book? But
3: if you're Nigella or Ottolenghi, surely they can read a recipe and go, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." They ingredients, yep. Yeah. Method, yep, that's going to work. Or mm. those flavors, mm, why would you do that? Yeah. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe they. I feel like they're, they're not going to write <laughs> the blurb on someone's book. Mm. No, but I mean, it's I like, I guess it's like a musician reading a score, yeah. right? Yes. I wonder if they don't, I feel like maybe that's a language need unto to, itself. Yeah. So mm. they're praising um, or, you know, recommending the recipes because I can see what Alice has put together. But also, like I say, that cookbook, so much of it is about kindness and really acceptance and the enoughness that Mm. you talked about. So it brings so much more than just a cookbook, right, Mm. of which I have thousands. Mm. And again, I'm not going to say I'm a bad cook because I'm changing my language, but I'm a getting better cook. (laughs) <laughs>
4: but this is bit, her book's about it. It's like a, It's about a psychology mm. of cooking. I mean, I felt like crying even at the beginning of the chat with her because I thought that's just so true that having the confidence to step into the kitchen, particularly when you've got a partner who traditionally in the relationship, my husband and I have been together for 30 years. And I think I do have this subliminal and overt messaging for myself that I am not the cook in the relationship. I'm not a good cook. And the more you say anything, the more you manifest it, and the more you gravitate towards that.
3: Yeah. Well, um, you are a memoir writer, though. Yeah, I can, actually, I can make dumplings. Yeah, <laughs> can you? <laughs> yes. Because that, I guess that was one of my my my, my first know, questions. If I yeah, if I was going to, and I do love a segue, and I love sort of connecting conversations. Hmm. And your memoir is about obviously you and your family. Um, you begin, well, firstly, you begin by dropping this revelation that you are being sued by your father, right? Yeah. Incredible start to a book. But then you transport us way back to China. You have to
4: wait a long time
3: to find out It's clever. (laughs) There's a tease. (laughs) No, but you take us way back to 1884 in China um, where your descendants are, basically. Mm. Um, And it's interesting to me when you're writing a story and you're thinking about your own story, do you feel connected to that, that version of your family? Because if I were to think of my version of over 100 years ago of my family, I don't feel like I'm connected to them.
4: I do feel very connected to that version of my family, I think because growing up in Australia as a Eurasian Person um, of Chinese and also British descent. <clears throat> Pardon me. I, I guess I was the coloniser and the colonised and I was trying to, obviously that's sophisticated language that I have now to use, but when I was a little girl growing up feeling very different and feeling ostracised at times, definitely feeling remote and, and um, from what I perceived were other people's white Australian experiences. I really spent a lot of my life now that i can you know look back with hindsight i spent a lot of my life trying to find my identity and in discovering who I am which is actually not my um, you know physical form like or cultural identity at all but to get there I really did connect very strongly with my cultural identity because I wanted to know where I belonged and that helped me um, discover a lot about myself by I think for any of us exploring our family heritage it's a it's a fantastically um, healing restorative exercise to go through and no wonder, Sites like Ancestry.com and, you know, and um, doing a DNA test and all of those things are so popular because people really want to know, where am I from?
3: Mm. I mean, that show on SBS is just extraordinary and very, it's emotional to see people explore parts of themselves that they didn't know Mm. were there because of their great grandparents. Do you identify qualities in yourself that you perhaps maybe have, you know, through the generations, yes. Have oh, definitely.
4: You? Qua qualities that I see in myself just through um, the many. So my dad was one of thirty-two brothers and sisters, and he um, just by virtue of that number of people in the family had a lot of external influence from his siblings. Um, my grandparents grew up in China, and then they moved to Hong Kong. And I, I knew my grandmother, even though she couldn't, uh, and I had a. A relationship with her, my, my dad's mum, so my paternal grandmother. Um, and she couldn't speak English and I can't speak Chinese, but we had a bond and a connection. And I really did feel a deep um, connection to my Chinese side of the family, probably also because I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong when I was growing up. Mm. And uh, would you say you
3: have a food like heritage do you you say you 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 know just connecting it with what we were talking about with um Alice you say you can make Dumplings, but does that sort of do you have memories of being in the kitchen yourself? I, I
4: have memories. It's 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 an unusual memory, but I suppose my memory of being in the kitchen as a child in Hong Kong when I'd be staying with my beautiful auntie Teresa. Auntie Teresa um, grew up during the Second World War, during the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong, and I write a lot about my dad and her and and their siblings' upbringings during the occupation. And for three years and eight months, Japan occupied Hong Kong. The schools were all shut. And a lot of the girls and women were locked away in their own form of isolation so that the Japanese soldiers couldn't reach them. And my auntie um, grew up in that environment and she went on later in life. She was a very driven person. She went on to become the world's first Chinese air hostess for British Airways. And through that, she built up the family's wealth again. The family's factories had been burned by the Japanese and the business had been destroyed during the war. But she built up the wealth again to pay for her siblings to go to school and by virtue of her status um, at that time as, a, as an air hostess, she, um, and it's very common in Hong Kong and many countries around the world, she had a maid and her maid Bridget was part of the family and part of my upbringing and Bridget was always in the kitchen cooking. See, I'm coming around yes, to the cooking. Yes, i got it. <laughs> and so Bridget would be in the kitchen cooking and I would come into the kitchen as a little girl and I would want to cook. I would want to participate in this ritual of cooking and these five courses that Bridget would bring out for our meal. But because of her station in life and because of this hierarchy um, that existed, Bridget would shoo me out of the kitchen and say, no, no, this isn't for you. Mm. You know, you're not meant to cook. So that was another message that I received when I was very young around cooking. Mm. Um, You know, it was one of many messages. I also grew up in a British household household. Um, it was a very, you know, you've read my story, so you understand that it was a very um, kind of fractured childhood in terms of the different households that I grew up in. So in the British household that I grew up in, my grandmother did cook, but it was seen as a service to the family. So the rest of the family members weren't really invited to join in or to cook as well. It was her service to the family. So it's interesting. So a bit like your background, I didn't really have that um inculcation in any cooking tradition in my family other than to watch as a an observer.
3: Mm. A, a lot of it too is related, I think, to the roles that our parents played and what, what they were able to provide for us. And I know a lot of your story is around your mum's mental health and her mental illness. So it's it's a very common, it's a common thing for people to grow up with parents who are not well. Mm. Uh I think it's really relatable and really a powerful part of your story. I'm interested to know. I mean, it has a huge impact that kind of upbringing. Um, what do you see that that impact has been for you?
4: Uh, well, it's been massive. I mean, my mum is a she. She was a undiagnosed chronic and acute schizophrenic for my entire life. So I think that the onset of the um, the illness or the symptoms of schizophrenia were with her from when she was 16, which I think is not uncommon. Often these things play out during teenage years. And she was misdiagnosed and then undiagnosed for the majority of her life. So that had a huge impact on me growing up because one, we didn't have a name for what she was experiencing in terms of the delusions and in terms of the um, suicidal ideation and the suicide attempts. But Two she wasn't being treated mm. so and um for a short period where she was being treated with electric shock therapy and uh and the and the drugs that she was being prescribed, they were not for schizophrenia, they were for bipolar or manic depression, as it was called and um so yeah, my childhood was really um It was really difficult, I suppose, for lack of a better way of describing it. And it was only once I was a parent myself. So as you mentioned before, I've got four children. And when my First, after my first son was born, my grandmother, who essentially was looking... My grandfather had passed away. My grandmother was looking after my mum in WA. I had run away to Melbourne, Victoria to pursue my career. I started a family here. I was still very close to my family, but from a distance. So geographically, I was, I was separate. And when my grandmother passed away, I'm my mum's only child. The responsibility for caring for my mum fell to me and I had always promised I mean this is another thing about messaging as a child I'd always promised as a child to my grandparents um, and they you know for better or for worse and they had the best intentions they did always say to me from a very young age um, you know please look after your mother when we go and so I always said yes of course I will and Mm -hmm. so I just knew you know without a shadow of a doubt when my grandmother passed away that my mum would come and live with me and with my husband and as I mentioned John and I together for 30 years and you can imagine what a big deal that mm. is for a partner to take on their parent-in-law who they've never lived with before and all of a sudden somebody who is chronically mentally ill is coming to live with you and your one child at the time. So my mum came to live with us and very quickly I knew and it was very obvious plain to see that Um, we could not leave her undiagnosed and untreated because her symptoms were so severe and um, her delusions, you know, she was locking herself in her room. She was threatening to kill herself. And it was actually, um, yeah, it was very traumatic. And for me and for my husband, and I had a little one, and I think because I was a mother at that point, Everything changed for me because I thought I cannot let my children or my child, uh, I was actually pregnant with our second child at the time, I cannot let my children um, grow up with my mum as ill as she was when I was growing up and so I, um, it was very difficult to um, get help. But I did, and and once I knew the right way to get help, and I had, um, I was very fortunate because of my journalism background. Twenty years, you know, as a journalist and a newsreader, I actually um, had become family friends with Professor Alan Fells, who was on the board of the Alfred Hospital. And it wasn't that he pulled any strings for me, but what he did was he sat me down, and he has a um, a daughter who uh, um, lives with schizophrenia as well. He sat me down, and he held my hands, and he said, you know, I will help you. This is what you need to do. And he basically just, um, you know, like Alice is empowering us to step into the kitchen, Alan empowered me to just pick up the phone and call the cat team. Mm. And that changed my life and my mum's life more to the point. I mean, a woman who had lived until she was, you know, 50 years old with this terrible affliction and these awful experiences um, was suddenly able to walk down a street without mm. hearing voices.
0: Mm.
3: It just breaks your heart to imagine how many people don't get the help they need because for so long there was no language, there was no acceptance, there was, you know, sweeping it under the carpet. It just you think how many people have been in pain for
4: so long with no help. Exactly, and I feel so privileged to have been able to seek that help and to be in a first world situation where we actually have mental health facilities mm albeit, you know, lacking to some degree. And obviously there needs to be more support in that area for people. But I'm so lucky. And as you say, there are so many people who fall through the cracks. You look at our, you know, part of our homeless population and you look at families that are being torn apart by Mm -hmm. mental illness, there's still a stigma that exists and there's still, um, you know, that hesitancy to reach out, for help in a lot of families, and I am quite um, interested. I suppose you know when you bring up my experience growing up with a parent with a mental illness, you think of all of those children yeah. who are being affected and growing up in households where a parent has a mental illness and they're not being adequately supported. Yes. I mean, that's that is where this idea of intergenerational trauma, I think, comes into play, and that's something that. Um, I don't think that there is any family that is immune or has been immune to that because every family intergenerationally has lived through war, has lived through migration, has lived through some sort of persecution, depending on how far back in a family's history you go. And so I I think that it's really... And and again, coming back to your first question about do I relate to my family? Do I identify with, you know, generations ago? Well, yes, I do because I recognise how interconnected that um, timeline of life is and that we are not just um, individuals who just exist out of nowhere.
3: Mm. It's a beautiful book. Do check it out, House of Choir. There's so much in it and you will find out why Mimi's father sues her. (laughs)
4: Yes, we didn't didn't really talk
3: about that. We didn't get to that. No, but you've got to read the book. It's amazing. Um, Mimi, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I've really loved it and do read the book. I loved it. It's so great. And I'm happy that I made time in my life to read it.
4: I'm so grateful (laughs) that you did. It is amazing that you had the time. Thank you.